ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Tonight then, inshallah ta'ala, as you'll be aware, we're going to begin the new course of study, the new book, which is called Kashf al-Shubuhat. And that means, briefly, the removal of the doubts. The details of that title, we'll even get to that later on, inshallah. Exactly what does Kashf mean Exactly what does Shubuhat mean? We'll even do the explanation of the title later on, insha'Allah. But this book then, it's a book written by a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, rahimahullahu ta'ala, a book which goes over some of the main doubts and arguments, some of the people who go to graves and seek intercession from the dead. Some of their main arguments are presented in this book and they are explained or refuted. As Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab explains the errors in their claims, explains the errors in their understanding and highlights what the true Tawheed is. So before we begin the actual book and start with the text, we'll do an introduction regarding it, an introduction which has been written by Al-Shaykh Al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala. He says himself, وَقَبْلَ أَن نَدْخُلَ فِي مَوْضُوعِ الرِّسَالَةِ نَتَكَلَّمُ عَنِ الْمُؤَلِّفِ والتعريف به من أجل أن يكون عند طالب العلم معرفة بهذا المؤلف وطريقته في دعوته لأن هذا من الأمور المهمة في معرفة الأئمة والدعاة إلى الله ومعرفة نشأتهم ودعوتهم من أجل أن يسير طلاب العلم he says, before we begin the actual book, we will speak about the author and acquaint ourselves with him so that the student of knowledge has an understanding of who the actual author is and what his methodology in da'wah is because these are important affairs important affairs regarding knowing who the scholars are who those uh, scholars are the a'immah are uh, what their upbringing was what their background was so that the students of knowledge, when they become acquainted with the scholars, then they can follow in their footsteps 
they can then tread upon their methodology in seeking knowledge, in understanding, in practicing. And that's why there are so many narrations in the Qur'an and the Sunnah telling us to return back to the people of knowledge. فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. So returning back to the people of knowledge in of itself is important. Not just the actual text we're going to study, but also knowing who the author is, who this scholar is, when did he live, what was the environment at the time, why did he even write this book, to have knowledge of those types of things for the students of knowledge is a normal thing. It is a normal thing and an expected thing that whenever you begin a book, you have an understanding of who the author is, some background regarding him, and also a background and an overview of the book before starting it. So the Shaykh says, فَهُوَ الشَّيْخُ الْإِمَامُ الْمُجَدِّدِ شَيْخُ الْإِسْلَامُ مُحَمَّدِ بِنْ عَبْدِ الْوَهَّابِ إِبْنْ سُلَيْمَانِ إِبْنْ عَلِي إِبْنْ مُشْرِفِ التَّمِيمِ النَّجْدِ وُلِدَ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ فِي بِلْدَةِ الْعِيَيْنَةِ وَهِيَ قَرْيَةِ فِي شَمَالِ الرِّيَاضِ وَكَانَتْ مَحَلْ أُسْرَتِهِ so the name of the author is Muhammad, the son of Abdul Wahhab, the son of Sulaiman, At-Tamimi An-Najdi. Muhammad, the son of Abdul Wahhab, the son of Sulaiman, At-Tamimi An-Najdi. He was born in the area known as Al-Uyayna. Al-Uyayna, that is the location where he was born in the year 1115 Hijri. 1115, 1115 Hijri, he was born in the location of Al-Uyayna. And Al-Uyayna, it is a village to the north of a Riyadh. Riyadh, of course, everybody knows now in Saudi Arabia, the city of Riyadh, the area Al-Uyayna is to the north of that. And that's where his family was from. That's where they were. Nasha'a fi bayti ilmin also, what is known about a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab is that he was raised in a house of knowledge, a household of knowledge. فَأَبُوهُ كَانَ الْقَاضِي فِي الْبَلَدِ His father was the judge of that area. His father was the judge of the area. وَجَدُّهُ الشَّيْخْ سُلَيْمَانِ كَانَ هُوَ الْمُفْتِي وَالْمَرْجِعْ لِلْعُلَمَاءِ 
His grandfather Sulaiman was the Mufti. He was the Mufti there. And he was the one the scholars returned back to. So you can see already, a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, his father was a person of knowledge, the judge of that area. His grandfather was a person of knowledge, the Mufti that the scholars used to return back to. But not only that, on top of that, his paternal uncles, his father's brothers, they were all known as people of knowledge too. So his family, his household, his father, his grandfather, his uncles, they were all people of knowledge. So a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was raised in this environment of knowledge in his own household. His own household was a household of knowledge. وَدَرَسَ عَلَى يَدِ أَبِيهِ عَبْدِ الْوَهَّابِ وَعَلَى أَعْمَامِهِ مُنْذُ صِغَرِهِ So from a young age, a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was studying, learning from his own father and from his own uncles. All of them were people of knowledge. So from a young age, he was learning from them. Learning and studying with his father, with his uncles. فَقَدْ حَفِظَ الْقُرْآنَ الْكَرِيمِ قَبْلَ أَنْ يَبْلُغَ سِنَّ الْعَاشِرَةِ And he memorized the whole of the Qur'an before he got to the age of 10. Before the age of 10, he had memorized the Qur'an. And that's something common that you see amongst the scholars. When you read the biographies of the scholars, many of them, many of them, you see in their biographies that they memorize the Qur'an young. Like we mentioned before in some previous classes, they used to have the katatib, as they were known as, those circles of Qur'an memorization. These days you have circles of Qur'an memorization in the haram, in mosques. So they used to have those circles of Qur'an memorization at the time of the Salaf. And the Salaf would send their children to those gatherings of Qur'an memorization so that they would memorize the Qur'an from a young age. At the time of the Salaf, it's even known about some of them that when they used to hold a class, any student who came, a new student, they would say to him, have you memorized the Qur'an? If he said not yet, the shaykh would say to him, then get out, go and memorize the Qur'an when you finish, then come and attend my circle. Because all of this religion, the Qur'an, that we, the Qur'an and the sunnah that we study, all of it is based upon evidences of the Qur'an, and thereafter the evidences of the sunnah. So that's something common you see amongst the scholars. Memorization of the Qur'an from a young age. فَاشْتَغَلَ فِي طَلَبِ الْعِلْمِ وَحَفِظَ الْقُرْآنَ عَلَىٰ أَبِيهِ So from a young age, a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab 
was preoccupied with knowledge and he memorized the Quran from his father. وَقَرَأَ كُتُبَ التَّفْسِيرِ وَالْحَدِيثِ حَتَّى بَرِعَ فِي الْعِلْمِ وَهُوَ صَغِيرٌ And at a young age, he was reading into the books of tafsir and into the books of hadith at a young age. And he became very knowledgeable and had good understanding of knowledge at a young age. From learning from his father, his uncles, from the books of hadith, the books of tafsir, he had a good level of understanding and knowledge from a young age. وَأَعْجَبَ أَبُوهُ وَالْعُلَمَا مِنْ حَوْلِهِ بِذَكَائِهِ وَنُبُوغِهِ And his own father and the other scholars were amazed at his level of ability. And he was young yet, but they were amazed at his level of ability and his sharpness and his intelligence and his maturity. وَكَانَ يُنَاقِشُ فِي الْمَسَائِلِ الْعِلْمِيَّةِ حَتَّى أَنَّهُمْ إِسْتَفَادُوا مِنْ مُنَاقَشَتِهِ فَاعْتَرَفُوا لَهُ بِالْفَضْلِ And he used to engage in conversations with them, discussions with them, debates with them around Islamic topics and Islamic issues to the extent that those elder people of knowledge would benefit from him in those discussions and those debates on Islamic topics. They would benefit from him and they acknowledged thereafter the virtue and the, 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 the status of a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab even in that young age, that he was somebody of knowledge now, learning and studying already, that he was somebody of smartness, intelligence, memorization, understanding and comprehension. The people of knowledge and those elder to him recognized that and saw that in him when he was young. ثُمَّ إِنَّهُ لَمْ يَكْتَفِي بِهَذَا الْقَدْرِ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ وَإِنْ كَانَ فِيهِ الْخَيْرِ إِلَّا أَنَّ الْعِلْمِ لَا يَشْبَعْ مِنْهُ لَا يُشْبَعْ مِنْهُ But Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab learned from his father, learned from his uncles, learned from the scholars who were there, but still he was not satisfied with just that. And that would be a large amount of knowledge to learn from your father, a scholar himself, to learn from your uncles, scholars themselves. That would be a significant amount of knowledge already. But the Shaykh did not suffice with that. And he was not satisfied with that. And as a Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, La yushba' minhu. Knowledge is not something that you can ever feel full with. Meaning when you eat, when you eat some food, then after a while you can feel full. I'm full now. But with knowledge, no matter how much of it you take, there is never a feeling of I'm full now. You are never going to experience the feeling of being full from knowledge. Such is the vastness of knowledge, the expanse of knowledge, 
So he did not suffice with that and he was not content with just that. So then what did he do? The same as what all of the Salaf they used to do. He then traveled out for knowledge. It is known from the Salaf, their methodology in seeking knowledge. Their methodology in seeking knowledge was that initially they would seek the knowledge from the scholars of their area. This is something you learn in the sciences of hadith, in the books of hadith. The methodology of the scholars of the Salaf in gaining knowledge. Initially, they would gain the knowledge from the scholars of their region. They would study with them, learn with them, read all of the books to them, read all of the narrations from that scholar to them. They would do all of that. Then, after they had taken all of that, all of the narrations and the chains from the scholars of their areas, then after that, they would travel out to go to other scholars too, to gain further knowledge, further chains of narration, further narrations from scholars of the other areas too. So that was something known. Seek the knowledge in their areas, and thereafter not suffice with that, but to travel out to seek the knowledge from the scholars of other areas too. So Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab did exactly that upon the way of the Salaf, sought the knowledge from his father, from his uncles, from the scholars of that area. And then after that, he traveled out to other areas. So he traveled to seek knowledge. And he left his family behind. وَوَطَنَهُ and his land وَسَافَرَ meaning his country and his area وَسَافَرَ إِلَى الْحَجِّ and he went to Hajj he went to do Hajj so remember he was living in an area close by to modern day Riyadh and so that to Mecca is several hundred miles so he traveled to do Hajj وَبَعْدَ الْحَجِّ ذَهَبَ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ After doing Hajj, he went to Medina. Medina. وَالْتَقَى بِعُلَمَائِهَا فِي الْمَسْجِدِ النَّبَوِي And he met with the scholars of Medina in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. خُصُوصًا And some of them are mentioned by name from them. Mostly al-Shaykh Abdullah ibn Ibrahim ibn Saif وَكَانَ إِمَامًا فِي الْفِقْءِ وَأُصُولِهِ And he, al-Shaykh Abdullah ibn Ibrahim, was an imam in fiqh and the principles of fiqh وَهُوَ مِنْ أَهْلِ النَّجْدِ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْمُجْمَعِ فِي سَدِيرِ وَكَذَلِكَ أَبْنُهُ إِبْرَاهِيمِ ibn عَبْدِ اللَّهِ مُؤَلِّفْ كِتَابُ الْعَذْبِ الْفَائِضِ he mentioned some of the names of the other scholars that he met with in Medina. So the point here is, he left his own land, traveled out to do Hajj. Then after Hajj, he went to Medina and sat with the scholars there. Even that point there, Hajj, in the olden days, at the time of the Salaf and thereafter in the early generations, 
Hajj was a pivotal point because they knew that all of the various scholars from the various lands are all going to be in one place at one time. So that was a common thing that after Hajj or during Hajj, they would go the students and meet up with the various scholars from the various places. Because they lived in Iraq and they lived in Egypt and they lived in Sham and they lived in Saudi, current Saudi, they lived in all these different areas. So then when it came to Hajj, all of them were upon that same area in that same time period. So they would go and do Hajj and then meet with the scholars of the various lands, sit with them and benefit from them. So Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab did that went to Hajj and then went and sat with the scholars in Medina. And then it mentions in his biography how he went to various other places too. وَمِنْهُمْ مُحَمَّدِ بِنْ فَيْرَوْزِ وَعَبْدُ الْوَهَّابِ بِنْ فَيْرَوْزِ أَخَذَ عَنْهُمُ الْفِقْرِ Then he also went to a place known as Al-Ahsa to the eastern side of the area Al-Ahsa to the eastern side of Najd the area of Saudi Arabia and there were many scholars over there too he sat with them, he learned from them, benefited from them وَلَمْ يَكْتَفِي بِهَذَا بَلْ ذَهَبَ أَيْضًا إِلَى الْعِرَاقِ إِلَى الْبَصْرَةِ خَاصَةِ After that, he went further. He went to Iraq also. Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab went to Iraq too, and especially Basra, and sat with the scholars there. كَانَتْ آنَذَاكْ آهِلَ بِالْعُلَمَةِ فِي الْحَدِيثِ وَالْفِقْرِ At that time, Two or three hundred years ago at the time of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, the area of Basra in Iraq was full of scholars. Many scholars in Basra in Iraq at that time. So he went there and he benefited from them and sat with them and learned from them. وَكَانَ فِي كُلِّ تَنَقُّلَاتِهِ إِذَا ظَهِرَ بِكِتَابٍ مِّن كُتُبِ شَيْخِ الْإِسْلَامِ ibn تَيْمِيَّةِ وَمِنْ كُتُبِ تِلْمِيذِهِ إِبْنِ الْقَيِّمْ نَصَخَاهُ بِقَلَمِهِ وَنَصَخَ كَثِيرًا مِنَ الْكُتُبِ فِي الْأَحْسَاءِ وَفِي الْبَصْرَةِ فَتَجَمَّعَتْ لَدَيْهِ مَجْمُوعَةً عَظِيمًا مِنَ الْكُتُبِ In those days as well, it wasn't like there were huge publishing houses and thousands and thousands of copies of books available go to the bookshop. In those days, they would copy out books. So it's mentioned when he was on his travels to the various scholars, to the various lands, if he ever came across a copy of a book of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah or a book of, uh, of Ibn al-Qayyim, if he came across their books, then he would copy out that book to have a copy for himself. That's what they would do. You come across one version of it, one copy of it, a manuscript of it, they would copy it out the whole book to have a version for themselves now, a copy for themselves. So he would copy out the books of Ibn Taymiyyah, no photocopies, nothing of course, copy them out the only way, 
He would copy out the books of Ibn Taymiyyah, copy out the books of Ibn Al-Qayyim, whenever he came across them on his travels. So in the end it's mentioned, he ended up with a large collection of books. A large collection of books he had in the end. ثُمَّ إِنَّهُ هَمَّ بِالسَّفَرِ إِلَى بِلَادِ الشَّامِ Then after all of this traveling, he intended and wanted to go to the land of Sham, Sham to the area of Iraq, Palestine, and Syria, and all of those areas. Lima fiha min ahlil ilm, because those areas 300 years ago too were full of the scholars, many of the scholars in that region too. وَلَكِنَّهُ بَعْدَمَا صَارَ إِلَيْهَا شَقَّ عَلَيْهِ الطَّرِيقِ وَحَصَلَ عَلَيْهِ جُوعٍ وَعَطَشٍ وَكَادَ أَنْ يَهْلَكَ أَنْ يَهْلَكَ فِي الطَّرِيقِ However, when he made the journey towards Sham, Al-Shaykh Al-Fawzan says that journey became difficult and food and water supplies, they ran out or became very low and he was about to die on that journey. وَأَنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ الْإِمْكَانَاتِ فِي ذَلِكَ الْوَقْتِ وَبُعْدَ الْمَسَافَةِ And Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, you know about the types of the development they had at that time, the means of transport they had at that time. Of course, it was only the donkeys and the camels still. It wasn't cars or vehicles. He lived, he was born in 1115. Right now we're in 14... 41, so that makes it how many years since he was born? 326, 30 or so, 330, over 300 years ago. So he lived 300 years ago, there or thereabouts. As a rough figure, 300 years ago. That's when we're talking about here. As Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was alive 300 years ago, there or thereabouts. So, uh, he was going to travel to Sham, but then the uh, issue occurred on that route, and it became difficult, and he was almost going to die. فَرَجَعَ إِلَى الْبَصْرَ وَعَدَلَ عَنِ السَّفَرِ إِلَى الشَّامِ ثُمَّ رَجَعَ إِلَى نَجْدِ بَعْدَمَا تَصَلَّحَ بِالْعِلْمِ So then he came back to Basra instead, uh, and uh, did what he could there, and eventually then returned after بَعْدَمَا تَصَلَّحَ بِالْعِلْمِ after he had armored himself. There's a better word. What do you call it? Equipped. equipped. But it's more like equipped when you uh, arm yourself. That he had armed himself, equipped himself with knowledge. Not the armor of weapons, but the armor of knowledge. That he had equipped himself, armed himself with knowledge. And then he returned. وَبَعْدَمَا حَصَلَ عَلَى مَجْمُوعَ كَبِيرًا مِنَ الْكُتُبِ إِضَافَةً إِلَى الْكُتُبِ الَّتِي كَانَتْ عِنْدَ أَهْلِهِ وَعِنْدَ أَهْلِ بَلَدِهِ ثُمَّ اتَّجَهَ إِلَى الدَّعْوَ وَالْإِصْلَاحِ وَنَشْرِ الْعِلْمَ النَّافِعِ So then after he had collected that large amount of books, on top of all of the books his family already had, because his family was scholars, father, grandfather, uncles as we said, so then he had a large amount of resources too. And a large amount of knowledge he had gained from his travels. So then he began with da'wah. Began in da'wah thereafter. And that is, as we say, al-ilmu qabla al-qawli wal-amal. 
Knowledge comes before statements and actions. Look at the example of a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab traveled all of those regions on donkeys and camels in those days. Traveled hundreds of miles, going into thousands around the trips until he came back home and then he begins in da'wah. After all of that, after all of that journeying and that hardship in those days in the deserts and the heat and going from one land to another, from Iraq to uh, Medina to various places, then eventually he begins in the da'wah. So then he did not want to remain silent and leave the people upon what they were upon. Uh, but so then when he came back and he saw in his society, he saw the evils in his society, the shirk that was prevalent in his society. This is how it was in those days 300 years ago. There was shirk prevalent and widespread in amongst the areas of that society where he was, which is modern day Saudi Arabia. So it was widespread, all of this evil and shirk which was occurring amongst the people. So then, uh, because of his mercy to the Muslims and because of his jealousy for the religion of Allah, he saw, he considered that he can't stay silent and allow all of this to carry on, that rather he needed to go and aid and do what he could in spreading the da'wah and correcting the people to the right path. وَكَانَ عُلَمَاءُ يَعْنُونَ بِالْفِقْرِ وَهُمْ فِي الْعَقِيدَةِ عَلَى عَقِيدَةِ الْمُتَكَلِّمِينَ مِنْ أَشَاعِرَةِ وَغَيْرِهِمْ لَيْسَ لَهُمْ عِنَايَةِ بِعَقِيدَةِ السَّلَفِ so the scholars of that area at the time, many of them focused on the issues of fiqh, but did not have a lot of focus on issues of aqidah. When it came to aqidah, many of them were upon the ash'ari way and other deviated ways. They were mostly focused on fiqh and issues of fiqh. As for issues of aqidah, then no. Many of them were astray upon the ideas of the Ash'a'ira and other than them from the deviated sects. So they didn't give a lot of importance and focus to the Aqeedah of the Salaf. وَكَانَتِ الْعَقِيدَةِ الْمُنْتَشِرَةِ فِيهَا هِيَ عَقِيدَةُ الْأَشَاعِرَةِ So the widespread Aqeedah at the time was the Aqeedah of the Ash'a'ira, the Ash'ari Aqeedah. وَأَمَّا عَقِيدَةُ السَّلَفِ فَقَلَّ مَنْ يَعْنِي بِهَا As for the aqeedah of the salaf, then there were very few who gave importance to that. وَطَغَتْ عَلَى الْكَثِيرِ مِنْهُمْ الْخُرَافَاتِ وَالْبِدَعْ وَالشِّرْكِ فِي الْعِبَادَةِ And many of the people were overcome by deviances and innovations and shirk in their worship. المتمثل بعبادة القبور هذا من الناحية العلمية and all of that is represented by the fact that the majority or many of them were grave worshippers at the time 
Many of them were grave worshippers at the time, going to the dead, calling upon the dead, asking for dua from the dead. That's what they used to do. Many of them were upon that deviance in aqidah, believing in these types of intercession with the dead, going to the graves and the tombs and the shrines. وَعِنْدَهُمْ أَشْجَارٌ وَنَخِيلٌ يَعْتَقِدُونَ فِيهَا وَيَتَبَرَّكُونَ بِهَا And they used to have trees and palm trees that they believed gives them barakah. They would go to the trees believing these trees have barakah in them that they seek blessings from them. That's what they used to do. Trees, thinking trees are like God's or that trees will give you blessings, but that is something known about the mushrikeen of old. The mushrikeen of old, they used to go and worship all different types of things. They used to worship stones and trees and people who have died and people who are alive, angels and stars, everything. As Shaykh Al-Athameen, Rahimahullah Ta'ala mentioned, that when they used to go on a journey, they wanted to take one of their gods with them. But maybe the only god available was with dates. Dates that you eat, they would put the dates together, squash them together into the shape of an idol and take it with them. That's their god on the journey. Dates, squash them together into an idol, like a statue, and they take that with them, that's their God to worship on the journey, made out of dates that you eat. Then on the journey, when you're out in the desert, and you run out of food, and you run out of water, and your supplies are running really low, and you get really hungry, you need to eat something. So if they got really stuck, then they had to quietly sneak something away and eat part of their God. Because the date thing was their God. So they would then sneak some dates out of that and eat their God. Eat their God. Such was the state of the mushrikun. So at the time of a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, there were people who thought there is barakah in trees. And that's not something unusual either, trees. Trees are known from the time of the mushrikun too. At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they used to have a famous idol known as... Not that one, what? Al-Izza. An idol they used to have, which was made of, in some narrations it says, three trees. At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, some of the mushrikun, they used to have an idol. Don't think idols were just statues. Like you imagine now Hindu statues and things. Not like that only. Many things are called idols at the time of the Mushrikun. One of their biggest and most famous idols was three trees in a triangle. Three trees in a triangle. And so they would get a big cloth and go around the trunks of the trees from the outside. Three trees in a triangle go with the cloth around the outside of the three trees with a big cloth. So then in the middle you've got like a like a type of a tent kind of thing, no roof on it. 
but the, the, the cloth is going around from one tree trunk to the next tree trunk to the third tree trunk all the way around them. A big cloth. So then there's this central triangular section inside. Inside there was a jinni. In some of the narrations it mentions a jinni woman. And they would go to this shrine and call upon it from the outside. And from inside that jinni woman would talk to them and reply to them. And so they believed this idol of theirs, these trees that they wrapped around and made this shrine out of and they talked to it and it would talk back to them. The jinni woman, the jinni shaitan inside. So then afterwards when the Prophet ﷺ conquered Mecca and he sent some of the companions to go and destroy all of these idols, he sent Khalid ibn al-Walid to go and destroy this idol. So he went and chopped down the trees, chopped them down and came back. The Prophet ﷺ said to him, you have done nothing. You've done nothing. So then he went back, and when he went back, looked again carefully, and that's when he realized about the jinni woman from the inside, the female. So then he killed that shaitan, and when he came back, that's when it was now destroyed, considered destroyed, the idol of Izza. So this thing about trees is an old concept too. So that was something which was widespread with the Sufis at the time of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, and it was something known in that area where he was. هكذا كانت حالتهم الدينية والعلماء ساكتون عن هذا الوضع. That's the state that he was in at the time. So imagine, just 300 years ago, current day, modern day Saudi Arabia is the area we're talking about where a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was. It was widespread shirk amongst the people. They would go to trees and other things, seeking barakah and intercession. And the scholars of the time were not putting up a, a, a big fight against all of that. They were not widespread with their clarifications and rebutting and rebuking all of that. So a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab saw that this responsibility was something he needed to carry and needed to push, to push the correct aqidah and to stop all of this misguidance and deviance and shirk that was occurring amongst the people of his time. فَلَمَّا رَأَى رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ حَالَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ تَحَرَّكَ لِلْدَّعْوَةِ So when he saw the state of the Muslims, he was moved to go and do the da'wah. He then began and uh, uh, went forth in that da'wah. وَقَامَ يَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ وَيُدَرِّسُ التَّوْحِيدِ So he began calling to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and teaching tawheed. وَيُنْكِرُ هَذِهِ الشِّرْكِيَّاتِ وَالْخُرَافَاتِ And he warned against all of these uh, actions of shirk that they were doing and all of these misguided actions that they were involved in. وَيُقَرِّرْ مَنْهَجَ السَّلَفِ الصَّالِحِ And he would uh, teach them and establish amongst them the manhaj of the salaf. 
the uh, the aqida the understanding the practice of the salaf tawhid of course fatukawwan fatakawwana indahu talamif so when he began going and giving all of this da'wa calling the people to tawhid warning against all of the shirk that the people were on then slowly he began to convince some of the people upon the truth they began coming to the truth and he ended up with students slowly they started coming to the truth and students began to emerge around him then the story mentions about how there was the collaboration between the rulers of the time etc to uh, spread that tawheed and to wipe out the shirk and the graves etc but then we'll move on to his books the books of a sheikh muhammad ibn abdul wahhab allaf sheikh al kutub wa a'zamaha kitab al tawheed the sheikh he wrote many books a sheikh muhammad ibn abdul wahhab wrote many books the greatest of them the biggest of them or the greatest of them is Kitab Tawheed. A book known as Kitab Tawheed, summarized, known amongst the people as Kitab Tawheed. The full title Kitab Tawheed, Alladhi huwa Haqqullahi ala al-abid. The book of Tawheed, which is the right of Allah upon his servants. That is one of the greatest books that the Shaykh wrote, if not the greatest book that he wrote. That is a book that is taught to this day. Scholars do not leave that book aside. One of the greatest books of knowledge, taught to the students of knowledge, as a curriculum book in the university. You know, in the University of Medina, these kinds of books are not curriculum. Kashfa Shubuhat isn't a curriculum book. Kitab Tawheed of Al Bukhari, that chapter isn't a curriculum book. Al-Usulu Sitta, Al-Qawaidu Al-Arba'ah. None of these books are curriculum books in the university curriculum. But Kitab Al-Tawheed, a curriculum book. You do that in your first semester when you start the university. Kitab Al-Tawheed, half of it in the first semester, the second half of it finish it off in the second semester. So by the time a student has done his first year, in the University of Medina, you're supposed to have understood Kitab Tawheed properly and memorized it, in fact. So that is one of his greatest books, if not the greatest book. Then also you have, of course, this book we're going to be doing, Kashf al-Shubuhat. وَهِيَ عِبَارَةٌ عَنْ رَدِّ الشُّبُهَاتِ الَّتِي أُثِيرَتْ حَوْلَ دَعْوَةِ التَّوْحِيدِ So when... As Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab began calling to Tawheed and warning against the shirk which was widespread everywhere, obviously people stood up against him. Those who were upon their ways, they were upon their shirk, they didn't like his da'wah, they didn't accept his da'wah, they stood up against him. And when they stood up against him, what they did, one of the things they did, they collated, they put together a selection of specific refutations they thought were against a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. 
they put together some refutations against him, saying that you are allowed to go to the graves of the dead and make dua to them because of X, Y, and Z. You are allowed to seek intercession because of this ayah and that hadith. They put together their explanations and their points as to why it's permissible to go seek intercession from the dead and make dua to the dead and do all of those things. They put together a bunch of points to prove their position is correct and to refute the position that Sheikh Muhammad was taking against them, which was of course the position of Tawheed. So when they put together these points of refutation and defense of themselves, the Sheikh clarified how all of their points are incorrect and refuted them. And that's what you have. Kashf al-Shubuhat. The Shubuhat are the doubts those people were putting forward against the da'wah of a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. The Shubuhat, the doubts, were the doubts they were putting forward to people, saying, no, look, you can do intercession. He's wrong because of this ayah and because of this hadith and because of this example. And you can ask the dead to take your dua because of this ayah, this hadith, and you can do this and you can do that because of X, because of Y. They were putting together their arguments with evidences. They were mentioning evidences. So now these became doubts because as we're going to come and see in a moment, what is a doubt? Who can define what the word doubt means in Arabic? Shubha, Shubuhat. What is a doubt? Anybody? So that means what resembles the truth. What resembles the truth? Something that resembles the truth. Anybody else? Say again, louder. Concerted? Uncertain. Uh huh. Anybody else? So a doubt is known as a doubt because it's confusing. If something is obvious, then it's not a doubt, is it? If something is obvious and clear, then it's not a doubt. If something is blatant, obvious, clear, then it's not going to be a doubt. So for example, you say to somebody, what color is this here? <coughs> what color is it? Green. Green. Is there any doubt about that? No. no, because it's obvious and blatant, it's green. But now if I say to you, what color is the top of this bottle? What color is the lid of this bottle now? Turquoise. Turquoise? Turquoise, can't even spell it, turquoise. Anything else? Blue? Aqua, mashallah. Cyan? Light blue, sky blue, what is it? Now, there's a problem. Because now the point of a doubt is, and that's just an example, but the doubt is something that resembles the truth, 
but it's not. It looks like it's the truth. It resembles the truth. It resembles something, very closely even. But it's not that thing. It's a doubt. Because for the people when they see that thing, they are going to assume it is the truth. Because it looks very similar. And apparently is, resembles the actual truth. So to the people when they see that, they won't know whether it is the truth or not. So now, these people came with arguments. You can seek intercession from the dead because of X, Y, and Z. And those evidences they gave, X, Y, and Z, when you look at them, the common people, they may think, that makes sense. You can go to the dead. Those evidences, they add up. So now, these are doubtful matters to the people. So the Shaykh, when he does kashf ashubuhat, kashf meaning to expose, to discover, to uh, unravel, to expose is probably the easiest word in English, to expose those doubts, i.e. to make it clear that these doubts which look like the truth are definitely not the truth, and to separate them away from the truth. So that's what Kashf al-Shubuhat is. There were people at that time who obviously had a problem with the da'wah of a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab when he started calling to Tawheed. So they put together a bunch of points against him to defend their position. You can do this, you can do that because of this evidence, that evidence. So then a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab exposed these so-called uh, uh, explanations of theirs and justifications of theirs and showed how the evidences they were using are not evidences to allow intercession from the dead and going to the graves of the dead and all of the points that will be covered insha'Allah. Al-Sheikh Al-Fawzan says here, just to round it off on the introduction, uh, he says, this book then is Kashf al-Shubuhat Kashf means izalatul to remove the covering from something. You are covering something up to remove that covering, i.e., to expose it. To remove the covering from something, to expose the covering from it. In the Quran, the example is given in Surah Qaf 22. That we removed from you your covering. So kashf, to remove, to expose. And the shubuhat is the plural of shubha. And it is something which is ambiguous. Something which is doubtful. You don't know. Is it there? Is it there? Is it true? Is it false? La yudra hal huwa haq am batil. You don't know if it is true or if it is false. And you have the hadith as an example. إِنَّ الْحَلَالَ بَيِّنٌ وَالْحَرَامَ بَيِّنٌ وَبَيْنَهُمَا أُمُورٌ مُشْتَبِهَاتٌ لَا يَعْلَمُهَا كَثِيرٌ مِنَ النَّاسِ That the halal is clear and the haram is clear. Then in between there are affairs which are the ambiguous, the grey, the unclear, the mushtabihat. And that is the shubha. 
فالمشتبهات هنا المراد بها الأمور التي لا يدرى هل هي من الحلال أو من الحرام so the doubtful affairs are those where you don't know is that halal or is that haram is that allowed or is it not allowed that's the point of a shubha so that brings us to the end of a brief introduction regarding this book you now have a brief background regarding a Sheikh Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab, his family, his upbringing, the area at the time, his traveling for knowledge. You also have a brief background as to what this book is, why it's called Kashf Ash-Shubuhat. We'll do it in more detail next time when we begin the actual book. Uh, and you also have some details about the reason behind why it was written. It was written because they tried to refute the Shaykh's da'wah by bringing points to justify their actions. Uh, and then the Shaykh came and refuted all of their points and their doubts that they were casting upon Tawheed. That's the introduction. Insha'Allah Ta'ala, next week we'll begin with the first line of the actual book. Uh, brothers have here prepared a workbook as well. For those who want to follow along properly and carefully and make notes, you have a workbook which has been prepared, has uh, the actual text of what we're going to be doing, and then lines for you to make your notes on. So that's something you can try and get a hold of, a copy of that, to make all of your notes as we proceed from next week. Uh, also, the main explanation that's going to be used for those who want the copies of the Arabic, if you have them already, or if you can get PDFs or whatever it might be, is the explanation of uh, Muhammad ibn Ibrahim Ali Sheikh. That's the main one that we're going to use. And we'll use other sections from the explanation of a Sheikh Al-Fawzan uh, and the explanation of a Sheikh Al-Thaymeen, some sections which may be for extra benefit or for simplifying certain things. <coughs> this one here is the explanation of a Sheikh Al-Fawzan. If anybody is learning Arabic and you're new to Arabic, then it's better for you to get this one. The explanation of a Sheikh Al-Fawzan. If you're newer to Arabic, Medina Book 1, Medina Book 2 kind of level, it's better to get this. If you're a bit higher than that, you have a better understanding, then get the copy that we're going to be doing, inshallah ta'ala. This copy, I haven't used it in a long time. The copy of a Sheikh Al-Fawzan. And today when I picked it up, uh, looked inside and there are notes here from when we did it and there's a date we used to put the dates of when we did these books this one it was done with a Sheikh Abdul Razak Al-Abbad this book was done in a conference in a seminar by a Sheikh Abdul Razak Al-Abbad in 1428 so that makes it 2008 maybe 2008 perhaps and these were regular things that they would do. This book would be finished in maximum seven lessons. They would finish this book in seven lessons. More than likely five, because the conference was usually just five days. And this book would be finished in that conference. And it was finished in that conference in one week. Outside of that, there are obviously conferences limited to five days or seven days. Maximum, sometimes they have two-week ones, and they'll finish these books within those conferences. 
outside of that in normal classes of the scholars you would expect maybe 10 to 15 lessons on a book like this here inshallah obviously a bit more minimum probably 15 or 16 and probably maybe more than that if we do more detail in certain sections go over certain parts with more explanation adding from the different scholars so you can expect approximately i would guess at least 12 to 16 is a minimum and more than likely a bit more than that more than likely the way we'll do it with a bit more explanation a bit more than that maybe pushing on to 18 lessons 20 lessons but even that is not much compared to the book we've just done Bukhari that we did, Kitab al-Tawheed, which took three years. This is a short course, four months we're talking. Four months, five months, you'll complete this whole book and it will answer many of the questions you are given from the Sufis, from the Brailwis, from those types of people, the ones who talk about going to the awliya, going to the graves, intercession, all types of things. It answers all of those questions. So it's a very important book, a key book. As always, you see today, mashallah, a good attendance. But we know that always what happens is, as the classes go on, then the attendance starts to go slightly less. But what you want to do is be sincere in your seeking of knowledge. Sincere that you're learning this knowledge for the sake of Allah to remove ignorance from yourself, to remove ignorance from other people, from your own family, from your parents, from your relatives. You want to have that sincere intention. You're doing it for the sake of Allah and that this is your religion. You are fulfilling the purpose of your existence by learning this knowledge. Because Allah told us, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship me. As Sheikh bin Baz, he said, So now Allah has told you why you're here. You're here to worship Him. That's why He created you. So then, what's the next step? Go and find out how to worship Allah then. Allah's created you to worship Him. Sheikh bin Baz said the next step is you need to go and find out how to worship Allah then. Otherwise you're going to live and not fulfill your purpose of existence. To fulfill your purpose of existence, you have to have knowledge of your religion, knowledge of the Quran and the Sunnah, knowledge of the Ayat, knowledge of what the Salaf were upon, knowledge of what this revelation is. So you're not doing it for any other purpose. You're doing it sincerely for the sake of Allah to gain this knowledge of your religion. And that's not something which happens intermittently. It's something which happens with consistency. Coming every week, putting this time aside for your religion. We put time aside for so many other things. You put time aside for your shopping, you put time aside for your car, fix it, this, that, the other, all types of things, we do them. There's no question if we're gonna do them, we do them. So this knowledge and this religion should be at the top of the priorities. More than your priority of shopping and your priority of uh, needing to fix this on the car or that. This should be your main priority. The knowledge that you are seeking, knowledge of your religion, knowledge of your Lord, knowledge of Tawheed. This book is a book of Tawheed. Explains to you the worship of Allah alone. 
and the abandoning of the worship of all others besides Allah. On the day of judgment, the difference between the people of paradise and the people of hellfire will be Tawheed. The Muwahidun, the people of Tawheed in paradise, and the Mushrikun, the people of shirk in hellfire. And don't think that shirk is just prostrating to idols. When you learn this book now and you go through it, you will be amazed. Shirk isn't just prostrating to idols. And in fact, in fact, one of the doubts that those people brought against the Shaykh was, they said shirk is just prostrating to idols. We don't prostrate to any idols. We go to the righteous Imams in their graves. What's that got to do with prostrating to idols? Prostrating to idols is shirk, not this. That's actually one of the doubts that they brought. And we know that is false. Shirk isn't just prostrating to idols. There are multiple different forms of shirk that can occur. So have that energy and that enthusiasm and that sincerity to study and learn from the beginning. A, a short course for a few months to make sure that you attend every week. No excuse, no laziness. Every week to be here. I'll be here every week, inshallah. The brothers here will be every week. I don't make an excuse one day and phone in sick. <laughs> don't get no sick notes anywhere. So everybody needs to make that effort. This religion isn't learned haphazard. It's not learned attending a couple here, missing one, and then attending a couple more. It's learned by regular, consistent seeking of knowledge. لا ينال العلم براحة الجسد Knowledge is not gained by relaxation of the body. You want to relax, you're not going to gain knowledge. You want to relax in your sofa, it's a cold day out there, there's another storm, storm, whatever we're up to. And it's not, it's not something that should prevent you. That bit of cold temperatures that are low in Troy, Canada, when we do the, the conference there, they have conferences all year round in Toronto, Canada. The one that I usually go to is the winter one. The winter conference in Troy, in Toronto. The first time I went, it was minus 27. Minus 27. To the extent you could get a bottle of water like this, put it outside, within a few minutes it would be a block of ice. And one of the brothers, he got a, uh, uh, those gloves, like a plastic glove, just a plastic glove like you put on the petrol station when you're going to fill up. A plastic glove, he filled it with water, tied it up, outside. In 15 minutes, it was all solid ice. I remember I was in the airport coming back from that conference. In the airport in Toronto, the news was on. Today, some places in Toronto are colder than the surface of Mars on the news. They were saying today, some places, translation, some places in Toronto are colder than the surface of Mars, they were saying. Because in the west side, it's minus 50. There are brothers who come from there. Brothers who come and attend the conference, it's minus 50 over there. They say your eyelashes, they join together outside. They get joined by ice. You have to keep doing, you know, you put something on or put gloves on or I mean, the glasses on. Otherwise, your eyelashes seal up with the ice. So here, when you have minus one, minus two, and that's about where we get to. Minus one, minus two, maybe zero, one degrees, two degrees, then it's nothing compared to what some of the brothers they do. 
and they attend. And then you have the opposite on the other end of the scale. When we were in Saudi Arabia in the summer, when these conferences were going on, these conferences were always summer conferences. In summer, you used to see the big billboards with the temperature. I think the highest I saw was 48 or 47 or something once. And in that temperature, you walk. You walk outside in 47, 46 degrees, and you go to the mosque. And these conferences, this one I remember, all of them, they used to begin after Fajr. So you get up at 3.30 in the morning from your dormitory, your uh, student accommodation, get up, get ready, and walk an hour and a half roughly to the mosque. An hour and a half roughly to the mosque, a qiblatain where this daura used to be, and then attend, and then at 9 a.m., the Fajr class finished, and you walk back, even at 9 a.m. to walk back the one and a half hours, then in that heat of 40 degrees already by 9 a.m., 35, 38, 40, it's not something easy. But that's something that occurs. It occurs now and the students are there, the brothers are there studying in those hot places as they were at the time of the Salaf, in that heat. So these types of excuses don't allow them to overcome you. Here, mashallah, today there are brothers from distant places too, traveling from other areas to attend, from other cities. An hour drive away, some of the places are an hour and a half drive away, 40 miles, 30 miles. Be consistent. Don't allow that to become a reason that one day you think it's a bit far. Let's forget it today. This knowledge, it's once a week we do this class here. Once a week for the next few months and you've done the book properly. It takes that proper step-by-step approach. And there's too many people that will regrettably do maybe 80% of the class, but they will have missed three or four in between. For no real good reason. If somebody has a good reason, fair enough. If there's a genuine reason, fair enough. But otherwise, don't allow little things from the shaitan whisperings of the shaitan to stop you because of course the shaitan will whisper to you every saturday don't bother today gotta do this today that today this happening that happening every week the shaitan will come with those excuses to keep you away from the class but look at what you see it's not just the knowledge it's not just the the readings from the explanations of the mashayikh even from the angle of brotherhood and sisterhood that you come together and you meet your brothers and you sit together, nobody's gonna tell me it's not a good feeling when you go home. Nobody's gonna tell me when you come on a Saturday night like this, and you attend the class that you don't have a good feeling from it. Just like the companions used to say when they went and sat with the Prophet ﷺ, that Iman would be good, but when they dispersed, then it would go low. Being together with the brothers, seeing this environment and being together, not just to play, not just to eat, but being together for the sake of knowledge, learning and studying, all of this is beneficial to a person, beneficial for the iman of a person. And this is exactly how the da'wah has built up in all of the places, all of the maraqis, worldwide, not just the UK. You begin with those classes and you start disseminating the knowledge. You start coming together, you start learning, you start reading the explanations of the scholars. Start going through the books one by one. That's the key to it. And that now the brothers can see the northern brothers around here in all of the different Marakis. How many places now the classes are going on. Brothers are together. They are organizing. They are 
putting together those uh, uh, classes, lessons, booklets here in Rochdale, in Leeds, Bradford, Nelson, Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, various places now, regular da'wah activities going on. And so this type of gathering should be a focal point almost, a focal point for your week. That you come together, you sit with your brothers, your sisters, sit with their sisters, those who are able to attend. You study together, you learn together, you revise together afterwards. And there is now, we have purposely set up a, using the modern technology which is out there, a WhatsApp group for this class. Anybody wants to join that with the brothers? For revision purposes, you can join that. The only condition is that you attend the classes. You attend the classes, you study, you learn, you can join, revise together with the brothers, put questions forward, check each other's notes. You can do all of that and it's all from the means of studying and learning. And this is something done by the senior students. Senior students in Saudi Arabia, there are groups they have right now for that exact type of purpose. The Salaf used to do exactly that in coming together after the class to revise, to revise their notes, to check over their uh, understanding so focus on it focus on it properly and inshallah ta'ala you will see the fruits of it the fruits of this studying of this learning of reading through these books one by one this one in a matter of a blink of an eye four months will have disappeared watch four months five months in the blink of an eye will have disappeared and there will be some sitting here in a good position because they attended everything and they've benefited and they've learned. And there will be some in a blink of an eye in four or five months who will be sitting regretting <laughs> that I should have just attended those extra five or six that I missed in between. There was no reason for me to miss that week or this week. In the blink of an eye, four or five months will disappear. There are brothers here who will remember when we started Kitab al-Tawheed three and a half years ago. There'll be brothers here even before that, Usul sunnah and Sifat salah of the Prophet's prayer described six, five years ago. Blink of a night, all disappears. I remember the first day I landed in Medina University. I still remember. Remember that day going there into the, uh, the, the uh, office and then going into the mosque and sitting there, don't know what to do, waiting for someone. You remember all these things and it disappears in the blink of an eye. So this life that we have now, it will disappear in the blink of an eye. As a Shaykh Al-Thameen said, days and nights. A few days and nights and it disappears. A few days and nights and it disappears. So now is the opportunity to make something of it. To make something of it, to learn yourselves, to learn with your families, your children. Protect yourselves and your families from the fire. Many of you will have attended the conference last week in Cardiff. Talking about these types of subjects. Talking about the need to preserve yourselves and your families. You don't want your kids growing up in 10 years on the streets with drugs and smoking. You don't want them involved in all types of evil on the streets. But then, how do you stop that? You need to take the means yourself for the tarbiyah, for yourselves and your children. So this, make it a focal point. That you come together to the classes. Not just this one, but there are classes in all of the various cities around here. In Liverpool there are classes, in Bolton there are classes. In uh, uh, Nelson, in Bradford, in Sheffield, in Leeds, in Rochdale, all of these places have classes going on every week, on a weekly basis. So wherever you're able to attend, attend. No doubt, where you are, 
in your local city, you attend that first. You attend with your local brothers and sisters, your local community, your local markas, your local da'wah. That is the asal. That's where you begin with your studies. As the salaf they did, you begin where you are, then you go out. But these days, that model isn't going to work quite right because it's not like we have scholars around here. That you're going to go to one scholar, learn everything, go to another scholar. So here, you go to your markas, you learn, you study. And then if you can, on top of that, if you're able, then go to another markas after that too, as an extra lesson. The lessons that go on around here, there's hardly any clashes. There's only a clash on a Saturday night and a Friday night. Occasionally where two marakis may have a lesson at the same time. Otherwise, they're none. So primarily, attend the gatherings in your markas, with your brothers and sisters, with your community, in your da'wah, in your locality. Then after that, if you're able, if you have time, try and attend another class here and there in another city, another place, if you're able. But this is something you have to strive with. Make the sincere intention and strive from now to the end. And inshallah ta'ala, everybody who's here today will be here for every lesson and finish the book completely. Inshallah ta'ala. So we'll round off on that for tonight. We'll carry on next week then after Isha, starting with the first point of the actual book. Uh, speak to the brothers here if you want to get this workbook. And then you can try and make notes and keep up every week as well, inshallah.